Thank you for listening to the Troy Podcast, where we promote, educate, inspire, and entertain creators of all things related to fantasy and science fiction. Hi, my name is Carson with Troy, and I have with me Graham Austin King. I'm excited for this interview, and uh, Graham, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Wow. Um, well, thanks for having me, first of all. I'm uh, an author from England. I write dark fantasy, epic fantasy, and uh, of late, more contemporary thriller fantasy, mm-hmm. sort of in the vein of, uh, of Dean Koontz. Okay. And you have five books out, right? Yeah. Yeah. Five at last count. Five at last count. You've probably <laughs> written a lot more than that, right? I've written five in a novella, but because I put a lump of the first trilogy into an omnibus, a lot of the time I lose count. So I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I've got you've put me on a spot there, but I, we'll say five. We'll pretend it's five. All right. Five <laughs> so tell us about your your trilogy. I know um, it's the Riven Weird so- Saga, right? Yeah. So the, that that was the first series that I wrote, um, and that really started as, as an epic fantasy. There's a book out by Raymond Feist called Fairy Tale, which I'll say now I've never read, but the notion of it is what sort of inspired me to do this. It was that it, because the blurb on the back of that sort of points us to the um, the darker origin of fairy tales before they got Disney-fied and, and things like think, Tinkerbell came along. So fairies in the Fae were, were something to be scared of. They were the reason that you hung horseshoes on your door. It's got nothing to do with luck. It's to do with the fact that it's the cheapest piece of iron you can get your hands on. You mm-hmm. want to keep them away. So that notion sort of intrigued me, and I sort of blended that with the notion of an epic fantasy world. Um, and the way that my series takes place is you've got a conflict between essentially Vikings, what I call Bjornman in the book, um, in hungry for new lands because they're running out of resources, so they're invading uh, another area. And at the same time, the real threat is the fact that the, the Fae, the, this mythical race that have been banished from the world for hundreds and thousands of years are now coming back, and that's the real threat. So over the series, over the course of the three books, it slowly comes to light that hey, maybe we shouldn't be fighting each other, but actually fighting these guys. But no one believes they're real. So right. there's lots of things tied up in it. Awesome. And your uh, you have a book. I think after that, uh, from the dates on the posting, the lo- the Laura of Prometheus. Yeah, I mean the one I wrote after that one was <laughs> it's quite funny. The one I wrote after that one was Faithless. Okay. Um, which was supposed to be just I was. Supposed to be a brain cleanser, really. It was supposed to be a break. It was supposed to be a fun, easy, light novella. And um, 140,000 words later, I realised that it wasn't a novella, and I kind of messed that bit up. Um, it also wasn't wasn't light. It's ex- it's probably the darkest thing I've written, and it's um, I guess if I had to sum it up, it's about what we really would do if we put it in the worst possible situation. Things that you don't like to admit to other people, but if it comes right down to it, you know, everyone's more or less gonna gonna do that thing. So it's about the darker side of humanity. Um it's about uh the it's about gods and, and lost religions and faith and things like that. So it's, that was a lot of fun. But then from there, again, I went and tried to write a novella with the Laura Prometheus. I was just messing around with that one. And, uh, and that turned into another novel. So what we've discovered is that I can't write novellas. You know, I've talked to other authors that are like that. They're like, I can't do a novella or a short story. Like everything comes out as a novel. Yeah, I had to do a, um, a short story for, uh, we did an anthology um, through Booknest with um, for Medicines on Frontier. Um, it's called Art of War. And I had to do a short story for that one, which ties into my, my sort of Riven Weird trilogy using the same world, but back massively in time from where that series is set 
and it was awful. It was so hard not, you know, because I, I, I get on something and I just run with it. So not being able to explore the characters and the, the wider world and, and the plot issues that are coming up. I have the greatest respect for people who can write short stories. I'm really not very good at it. It took me forever to write this really short piece and I was getting nagged at by the poor guy who was trying to edit it. It was like, are you done yet? No, no, I'm not. Because I just can't end this thing. Oh, man. But, yeah. Well, let's go to part of that. Are you more like a free writer? You like to explore or do you plot out or do you do like a mixture of both? Uh, it's kind of a mixture of both. I'm more of a free writer than, than I'm a gardener, I guess, than, than an architect. <laughs> than an architect. And, uh, what I would tend to do is I will write until I hit a wall, swear a lot, go back, have to change half a million things, and then I end up plotting things out only to ignore what I've plotted out halfway through. My, my fiance is much more of a, a plotter than, than a gardener, so she'll have things planned out much more rigidly than I will, although she still deviates from that and then there's some relaxation in her writing. But every time I've tried to rigidly plot something out, I end up just ignoring it and going off on a tangent. So it doesn't really work. It works in a sense that I can I can use it for future ideas. And you know, this is going to happen actually in chapter 17 instead of chapter three. But mm -hmm. beyond that, I just tend to to drift. So <laughs> Any, anything I've tried to do more structured and that just fails miserably. The more I write, the more I realize that sometimes characters have a mind of their own and they kind of oh, go God, off. Yeah. yeah. yeah and my, I mean, my writing, once I get into it, once I get into a zone, it's quite funny because I have literally no idea what's coming onto the page and I'm almost reading it as I'm writing it. Mm -hmm. So I'm writing it away and I'm, I'm, I've been caught laughing at the, at the lines that I'm writing down because they're new to me as a person who might read it if they ever pick it up. So that's quite a strange thought process. But yeah. It's, it, there's no real forethought, especially with dialogue, because it just comes out. You're uh -huh. just reacting to the last line. Um, so, yeah, it's very strange sometimes. I would have never thought when I began to write, or before I started writing, I was like, oh, yeah, you just plot it out and that's it. And then they do what you want, but they don't. Yeah, I mean, I know guys that do. I know I used to know a guy who, who plotted everything completely rigidly down to the end detail. And he'd plot until he had pages and pages and pages of notes. And then he'd go and bang a book out in, in like a month because he had everything planned all the way. And he was doing 10,000 word days. I could never do that. Yeah. I suppose in the long run, we'd probably end up spending the same amount of time on it. He just spends more time on the plotting than the writing. Whereas right. I'd write it out and then have to go back over it, polish it, shift it around and make it make sense. And mm -hmm. I can swear a lot more, but you know, <laughs> it's part of the process. Well, let's talk about your writing habits. Like, do you have a daily plan that you do? No, I used to. I mean, I was, I was, I was writing full time um, a couple of years ago and I had to ended up having to go back to work. So that's changed things dramatically for me. I used to insist on having a, a, at least a minimum word amount written each day. Mm -hmm. And I'd affinate myself until I was bouncing off the ceilings and then, then the words would come and then I just, just bang it out. Um, now it's, it's much more as and when I can fit it in between work and kids and so on and so forth. So my, my production schedule has dropped like way off. And my word count has dropped way off. So it's uh, there's been a lot of changes in, in my circumstances in the last couple of years. So it's just trying to make it fit at the moment. And we're slowly getting back into it. So with working kids and writing and, and things that you want to do, you know, hobbies and, and fun and all that, painting your house. Yeah. How do you balance all that? Badly. <laughs> <laughs> really badly. Um, yeah, because I have my kids half the time. So what I try to do is when I've got them, there's not much writing going to happen. They're too young and it's just, it's not going to work. Um, I'm, I might do some plotting. I might do some marketing stuff whilst they're here. But the rest of it is really focused on the time when they're not, not here. And I try and slam it in then. 
um it's it's just a matter of, of really trying to, to focus on it and just knuckle down and do it but yeah it's not easy it's not and you i think people have this romanticized idea of what an author is and they think yeah oh i'm gonna write a book and get it out and i'm gonna make all this money and you know i'll be able to do what i want and the majority of the time of the people that i talk to it's not like that at all it is it's a grind you have to balance work and play and family and sometimes it's at midnight that you can sit down and, and write yeah yeah i mean interesting i'm switching computer systems um because my old computer is, is a piece of junk that takes 25 minutes to, to turn on I, when I do get the urge to write, I need to be able to sit down and just, just do it. I need to turn on instantly and just be able to write, you know, bang those words out quickly before the thought's gone. I'm, I'm the kind of person that will make notes and then forgot that I've that I've written them down anywhere, so they'll never make it into the book. So I need to sit down and just, just get on with it. But yeah, that romanticized notion that you can just lock yourself away in a room with, uh, with you know, a beautiful view out your garden window and just spend all day just in a relaxed fashion just just pushing away at it that's a nice idea but it doesn't work like that in practice especially in self-publishing where you need to keep up some level of production schedule because otherwise people are going to forget about you there's, there's a bajillion books out there it's not quite the same as as the as a trad press where if you're lucky you've got the the, the weight of the marketing division behind you um if you're more realistically often you don't but with uh, with self-pub i think that if you don't keep yourself in, in your readers minds once uh, once a year once every 18 months at least then there's a chance that they're just going to move on and they'll miss the next book you put out so right you really have to have a passion for doing this mm, yeah absolutely yeah it's not i don't i mean it's, it's a it's an insane thing really i don't know why we put ourselves through it it's an it's a huge <laughs> investment i mean in, both in terms of time and also the, the outlay in putting a book out by the time you've done your your book and you've written it and revised it and polished it then you've got to pay for your proofreaders you've got to hope your beta readers are actually coming back with real real responses uh you've got to pay for formatting you've got to pay for your cover art and then there's all the marketing on top of it it's it's a huge outlay right and there's no guarantee you're going to get it back i mean right. in theory you'll get it back eventually because the book's going to sell slowly but yeah it is it's a massive investment so what sort of challenges do you find as a self-published author author that you um have run into that you didn't expect? The biggest one, I mean, it's, it's getting better, but the biggest one that I've faced over the, my, my writing career has been the stigma that self-published has, because people conflate it with, with Vanity Press, which it isn't at all. But by the same token, there are people that self-publish books and I'll put them out there and they haven't paid for editing and they've made the cover themselves in Microsoft Paint and it's just, it's horrendous. Mm -hmm. It just looks terrible. And so, you know, you often will, will get that when you hear someone say, you know, when, when someone hears that you've written a book and they're talking to you about it and they say, oh, who, who published your book? And it's like, oh, I'm self-published. And you just get a look. Oh, right. Okay. Vanity Press or, or something similar. So there's still that stigma that needs to be fought past. I mean, in the last few years, there's been um, things like Mark Lawrence's self-published fantasy blog off, which, which helps chip away at that because we've had books come out the other side of that that have been picked up by Trap Press and it just highlights that self-pub can be as good if not better in many cases than a traditionally published novel so there's that fight past um the other thing of course is that it's much more difficult certainly in the UK to get your self-published book actually into stores 
Amazon's always going to be there. Right. But and so is, um, you know, Barnes and Noble and then Kobo and everything else. They'll always be there, but there are a billion books on that. To actually get yourself on a shelf in a, in a store is very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. And over here, we have far fewer independent stores than you guys have in the States and in Canada. Um, I think you're, you're lucky in that it seems to be just about every town has got an independent shop that you can you can potentially get something into here. They're either don't exist or they're, they're very much niche books dealing in, in antiques and things like that. So it's, it's much harder to get them in. Being a self-published, you have to be involved, like you said, in every step of the process. Do you like that control? Like you have to find the cover art. You have to do the editing. And... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't used to. And I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard in the sense that it's hard to find, especially editing. Editing is, is the worst one, um, specifically proofreading, because I can't do it. I get book blind. I can't see the fact that I've, and when I get typing and I'm going quickly, I will often skip a word. Like I'll skip the, and I've now read this thing like five times by the time it's gone off to an editor. I can't even see that there's the word missing anymore. Mm-hmm. So if it goes to the proofreader and they miss it too, I'm never going to know. <laughs> <laughs> like this is your job to, to find this. And uh, if you miss it, then I'm not going to see it. So it's really hard to know that if that you found someone that's good, and you go on word of mouth and you go on recommendations from uh, from friends and, and from other authors, but there's still no guarantees that they're going to do a decent job in terms of the proofreading. The editing is, is very different. And I've, I've been through a few editors as well, but editing, at least you know that what's coming back is, is quality edits. Usually, by the way, that uh, if, if you're feeling great as you're editing, then they're doing it wrong because it's not their job to make you feel good about yourself and to say you've done a fantastic job on this and that's wonderful and I love this section here. I wrote it. I'm reasonably sure that what I've sent you is good. What I need you to do is tell me the bits that I've screwed up. Right. Uh, I need you to tell me that this is wrong and that doesn't work and there's a continuity error here. If all you're doing is, is making me feel good about myself, then we're, we're wasting each other's time and I'm paying for an ego stroke, which which is not good to us. Right. And the same thing can be said about beta readers. I know people that have got hordes of beta readers and they come back to them and say, yeah, loved it, can't wait for the next one, give me more. A lot of the time, well, not a lot of the time, but some of the time these people are just out for free books. What you need is someone who's going to give you a genuine critique. Don't surround yourself with friends and flatterers because they're not helping you. Mm-hmm. That's that's actually fantastic advice. But it's a hard thing to learn, unfortunately, and I've, I've been through it the hard way. Um, but yeah, I, there's no point in giving your book to your friends unless they're going to be brutally, brutally honest to you. Mm-hmm. just a waste of everyone's time have you had have you had luck with your editors like i talked to i've talked to some people <laughs> and they they pick an ed- editor and they you know they they do uh, give them well, an ego stroke and they're like no that's not what i need so i gotta fire you i've i've had i've actually lost count i think i've had five editors now and i'm, I'm marrying the last one so something to work <laughs> yeah that would uh, be great uh, to be fair, she's now going to be very difficult to fire. But, you know, <laughs> she's in the hallways. Can be careful what I'm saying here. But, yeah, <laughs> no, it's much the same in that you don't know that, that it's going wrong until you found something that, that someone who does it properly. And so I've, I've been through a few. I've, I've had editors that, that will just stroke your ego. And also it's, it's difficult to, to find an editor who knows where, where the boundaries are because it's, I don't know, this is why I don't edit, because it's very difficult. To, to stop yourself from them rewriting that section. Mm-hmm. What you need to find the line is like, this doesn't work. You need to find a way to, to, to do this with your characters or do this with the plot rather than, hey, how about you write this and put this section in? So I've had that a few times where they, they just want to rewrite the thing. And that's that's not what, that's not helpful. It's not helpful to me. It's not making my writing any better. And for all I know, their writing is as bad as mine was. So yeah. 
that doesn't really work. But yeah, finding one can be really hard. I know a couple now. I've got a couple now. The funny thing is, is that once you, I guess that the main thing is you, there's no point trying to do this cheaply. Right. I mean, you like everything you get what you pay for. Right. So if you're going to buy cheap cotton, if you're going to buy cheap cover up, then it's, it's not going to look as good. It's going to get looked down on. It's going to get trash. If you buy cheap editing, well, it's cheap for a reason. There's a reason that uh, a lot of the, the very successful self-published authors use the same editors that Trav publish that Trav houses use. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's more or less who I'll be using now combined with them with my other half. Awesome. Looking at the covers of your book, you have fantastic covers. Was it hard to find good cover art? Yeah. Yeah. It was really hard. Um, I lucked out that the, the first three are from a guy who's now working with, um, Ubisoft, I think is where he ended up. So he can't work with me anymore because he's got an exclusivity contract with them. But yeah, he was, he was good. Um, the person I use now is uh, a lady called Penn Astridge, um, who's based in Australia and she's done the last, she's done my novella and she did the last two novels I've done. And uh, yeah, she's fantastic. She's really good. So it's just, it's luck of the draw. But again, it's, it's, it's finding someone that's willing to take feedback from you and it's, it's being willing to just not settle. Um, if something's wrong with it, tell your, your cover artist and say, right, I, I don't like this bit, change that. And you just need to be picky. At the end of the day, you know, <laughs> man is kind of go out the window. Business is business. You're paying for it. You just need to, to get a quality product and know that and be happy that what you're sending out there is, is good. Yeah. But also get, get outside responses on it, get people to look at it and say, you know, what works with this? What doesn't? And am I just letting my own taste uh, take, take, center stage here and uh, maybe that's not always such a good thing so was your artist recommended to you or did you just go to a website and like kind of look at her art and choose her or do you remember you how no it I, I, honestly i can't remember how i found her now um i think i knew her from from the community on facebook because okay. uh, there, there is a big fantasy writers community on there and fantasy readers community on there and i think we were moving in more or less the same circles anyway so we might have just started chatting from there, but I can't, I genuinely can't remember when it shifted from just talking to her to, to getting her to do stuff for me in terms of cover art. Just one of those things that I think I just lucked out. It just kind of happened, huh? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, she's, she's, she's really good. So, I mean, the last three, three covers I've had done are really good. And she does, uh, she does Alicia's cover art as well. So, yeah, she's, she's awesome. Nice. Um, I like little happenstance like that that always... It always seems to work. It's, it's a part. It is a part of the writing community I'm in because there's about, I don't know, about five, ten of us, really, that are in regular contact. We're all using more or less the same people. We all bounce ideas off each other. Uh, everything from, from marketing to editing to cover up, so on and so forth. And you just hear the same names coming up over and over. So quality sells and, and tells, I guess. I mean, right. we just keep these people. And the weird thing is, as much as it feels like a, a huge community, it isn't. It's a very small writing community and word will get around. So if you've done a bad job with someone, then people are going to find out. So I guess in, well, I guess in any publishing world, um, networking is, is important. Let's, I'm, I'm going to kind of go back to in, in your childhood here. <laughs> Do you remember like the first kind of fantasy or science fiction story you, you watched or read and you're like, holy cow, like this is kind of what I want to want to do? Yes and no. I mean, I, I basically lived in my local library, um, so I was just devouring it. I remember my dad had a, a, a copy of Lord of the Rings, and I can't remember how old it was the first time I tried to read that, but that well, I must have been way too young for it because I didn't get it. 
I remember reading Lloyd Alexander, who wrote The Black Cauldron. Yep. Um, which isn't the first book, but I think that's the first one I picked up and I devoured that series. And then it was just onwards and, and upwards from there. So I just worked my way through, through all the, the obvious ones that him, Tolkien, uh, Feist, onto Pratchett, onto David Eddings, just worked my way through. I don't think I ever sat and thought, wow, I, I want to do this because I didn't think that that was a possibility. Authors in, in my head at that point, they, they were special people. <laughs> they were, you know, Oh, clearly they're not because you know I can do it. Anyone can do it. But um, yeah, it was it was. I, I would have never sat down at that point and thought, "Hey, I could write a book." It's like that would be right up there with like, "Hey, I could go to the moon." Um, uh-huh. Yeah, just not possible. But yeah, I, I had been devouring both fantasy and science fiction from an early age, and it was just yeah, I, that was my geek apprentice and an apprenticeship, and I just went on from there, just devoured everything. So when did you decide? Like, I got the story that I want to tell. I want to. Uh, the first time I tried to write something, I would have been 16. And we decided, my friend and I, because I'd, I'd moved to the other, other side of the country, we decided we were write a book between us, which lasted all of six months. We were going to write something sort of, I can't think who, who, which author it was based on, but it was it was sort of a, a sort of Dean Kinsey, real world fantasy type idea um, that, that crashed and burned and was, was terrible. So that was abortive. And then I tried to write something again when I was about 19, which again was more of the, the horror genre than anything else. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I was in my 30s that I wrote this trilogy. In fact, the, the, the Fade of Wild Hunt, the first one in the Ribbon Weird Saga, was the first book I actually wrote, start to finish, finished, and then just published it. So, yeah. So do you have any other geeky hobbies that you'd like to do? I fulfill all the geek stereotypes. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I did video games for a while. I, you know, when I was younger, I don't do it so much now. Um, role-playing games, we do. Uh, I know many or many fantasy authors have, have been into Dungeons and & Dragons, and uh, we still do it now. So I, it, it's weird the way that it ties into to writing, especially when you're running the game, because the process is, is weirdly similar to writing a, an adventure for a role-playing game to, to writing a book you've got slightly more control over what your player characters are going to do. But at the end of the day, the adventure and the way that you're, you're moving people around through it is, is broadly the same process. So I think that was a, a weird mental apprenticeship for it, a weird preparation. But yeah, that's sort of tied in. Beyond that, it's just the obvious stuff like, like paintball and, and shooting my kids with super soakers and things like that. You do paintball there? That's awesome. Yeah, I've done. I've done. I'd like to do it again, but it's these time and coronavirus doesn't help. How have your sales been with coronavirus? Have you seen like an uptick or kind of up and down? Or? Uh, my sales, more or less the same, actually. I'd, I'd say that I haven't been massively affected. But I think that that's largely because most nights as well, most of my sales tend to be ebooks or audio books, which of course are then instantly available online. Um, right. I have to go to a bookstore and pick up the paperback. So I think that my, my, my hard copy sales have gone down, but the ebook sales have gone up. So. that's good do you have your books out on audible yeah four of my books are on audible my riven weird are on uh, audible and my uh lord prometheus books on audible through tantal media okay Uh, do you you have a fantastic voice do you do the the recordings no god no um no no (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the first three i used um amazon's acx platform and works in collaboration with uh with an english actor johnny mcpherson who does 
everything. Uh, he does a lot of stage work and he does, uh, he's on a soap opera, he's on a bunch of things. So he did the first three, he was really good. And he didn't do it in the style of a, a standard audio book. He actually did it as a, it's like a one man play. So he was doing different voices for all the characters. Um, it was, yeah, he was fantastic. And then Faithless, for reasons that I can't really disclose without ruining story, is extremely difficult to convert to an audio book because having a narrator, unless you had two narrators, having one narrator read it would ruin the book. So I've sort of shelved that one for now. I'm undecided what to do about it. And then The Law of Prometheus was picked up by Tantor Media, who had uh, their own uh, narrator, Gildar Jackson, who's another actor. He's been on Stargate and CSI and a bunch of things. Um, who did that one? He did a great job as well. So no, uh, I, I don't have the patience to do it. I don't have the patience to, to record no. it and sit there and go back and edit. Yeah, I'm a very impatient. I'm the most impatient person in the world, which is why I need to hire external editors because I'll just hit publish. <laughs> so I need someone to, <laughs> to rein me in and say, no, it's not ready yet. But yeah, I'd never be able to do that. I think my house would never be quiet enough to do that either. So. I know I got I got three kids here right now and I had to like sit them down and be like okay from this time you can't talk to me <laughs> yeah they're all sedated in a corner yeah you, you can't talk to each other either so <laughs> just sit there in your gags and watch the show okay yeah <laughs> so you've you spent a life reading and and it, you know being entertained by these wonderful authors like what are some of your favorite books and authors that you've kind of gone back to and read um, and my taste vary hugely as well. So I started off with the fantasy stuff and I drifted through Stephen King. I've kind of come out the other side of that. The same thing with Dean Koontz and James Herbert. Uh, these days, there are, there are a couple of books that I keep going back to and I don't really know why. They're just comfort books. Uh, one of them is The Name of the Wind by um, Patrick Rothfuss. Patrick Rothfuss, uh-huh. There's something about I, I don't even like the, the whole story, but there are parts of it that are just really nice to read. So just go back there and read that. The other one is... Um, it's The Martian by Andy Weir, which is just a great one to read over and over. But I'm a, I'm a judge for, for Spiffboat this year as well, so I've got a lot of reading to do for, for that competition. So there's a lot of self-pub stuff I've got to read for that. That takes a lot of time. Yeah, yeah, because I've got so much extra time, I figured that why not yeah. for this and do this as well. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, insanity. But yeah, so I'm not, I don't actually have much free reading to do at the moment because my time is taken with that and, and the reviews for that. Since you don't have free reading, are you able to listen to audiobooks or anything like that? Audiobooks don't work for me. I'd need to be in a car. Don't they? No, I've, I have listened to them, but I could only listen to them because I'm on a long car journey. Because I, I can read quite quickly and I'm impatient, like I said. So I'd rather read the, the book, either a paperback or a, or a Kindle copy, and just, just work my way through it at my speed rather than listen to someone's narration pace. Uh, I, frankly, I mean, some of them are so long. I don't have 22 hours to spare. So, yeah, I'd rather, I'd rather have it in my hands. So a trick that I do is I listen to all my audiobooks at either 1.5 speed or 1.75. Yeah, yeah. That way, you know, because I'm a fast reader too, and listening to them at normal speed seems like it's so slow. Mm. Yeah. That I have to up the speed, and I'm like, okay, this is this this gels in my head. I can put it together a little bit faster. Yeah, I mean, I know people love them, and um, some people. It's, it depends on what you're doing. If you're in the gym, or if you're going on a car journey, or if you've just got a few hours, then then yeah. And I've listened to them, and I've enjoyed them. But for me, I'd rather have the actual book to read. It's more, it's a different process for me. Where do you come up with your ideas <laughs> for stories? And how, how do you like sift through them and be like, okay, that's a bad one. This is a good one. This I want to save for later. I've honestly got no idea. They, I mean, there's, there's a lot of shower thoughts going there. Um, you, you get ideas at the weirdest time. I used to get ideas walking the dog, stuck, um, almost 
almost writer's block, I'd go off and go for a long walk and I'd be talking to myself and going along trying to work myself through the problem. But the best ideas are ideas that come to me on the fly. So I don't sit and just come up with the idea and write it down and say, okay, we're going to put this in here and that in there. It just happens. And what's quite funny is that you'll have written something in chapter two and now you're in chapter 17 and this stuff just comes out of your fingers onto the page. And now you suddenly realize why that happened in chapter two with no forethought at all, but the connection is there and it suddenly makes sense. So I don't know. It's almost subconscious a lot of the time. Yeah, I get that. my brain's just cracked, I guess. I have no idea. Yeah. So do you always have like a pen and paper around that you write? I mean, you said earlier that you write stuff down, but you can't find it. I used to. I mean, I've got a, I've got a whole notebook here full of stuff, but half, I mean, I forget that it's in there. And the same thing said for, uh-huh. for notes on the phone, because I'll write things down on there and then forget they're there. So, I, I mean, if I'm quick enough, I'll put a note in the, the software I use and put it in there. But the rest of the time, no, <laughs> it's just like the door if I can get to the computer fast enough. Based on all your influences and stuff like red fantasy, red horror, and, and now you're kind of mixing it with dark fantasy, like why why that genre specifically? Why not just be like, okay, thriller or historical novels or whatever? Like why did you pick speculative fiction? Well, first I think that the, the genres, grimdark is a great example because it's, it's an artificial thing. It doesn't exist. It's, it's, it's something that the, the, the booksellers created in order to put books together on a particular shelf. Um, there's no reason why you can't have grimdark science fiction as much as you could have grimdark fantasy or even, you know, right. I mean, it's been around for donkey's years. They just put a different label on it. So in my head, at least writing is writing is writing. And it's, I start with the concepts and I go from there. The fact that it turned out to be an epic fantasy novel in, in my brain is somewhat immaterial. That's the label I've got to put on it when it's done. I write fantasy because fantasy is what I enjoy. And also because it allows me to move beyond the constraints of what's possible and what's possible current in this world it's little things like you know you don't have to stick so religiously to the mechanics and the facts of what we currently have technologically and you can go off on a tangent and say yeah but what if uh, that's certainly what happened with prometheus and it's the same way with um with the Riven weird saga but no I, I mean they say write what you love and i've always enjoyed fantasy so that's that's probably the genre i'll stick with in some vein uh, throughout my career mm-hmm. well i like it because one, you can be creative and you can kind of create this own world, but you can also bring real world aspects into it and tell about it. Like, kind of like what Tolkien did with Lord of the Rings, you know, World War II is yeah. going on and, and stuff. So it was kind of allegorical, but very fantastical. Well. Yeah, I mean, Dennis, to, to be fair, though, I mean, <clears throat> I'm not really writing a fantasy story. What I'm, what I'm doing is I'm writing a story about people. Uh, the fact yeah. that it happens in a fantasy world is, is almost irrelevant because... But if that's all you wanted to read, there's, you know, there's a million books out there. The story is about the people and about how they interact with each other and and, and how that impacts and reflects back on, on us, the readers and, you know, the people in this world as well. So it's more about that than it is about the world that it's setting. Anyone right. particularly interested, if, if it was just about the world, then it would almost be nonfiction. It's the people that we're interested in. And if it's just about the world, it'd be boring. Also true. When you're doing your research for... Um... Or, or just doing your, your outlining and plotting, how long do you take before you're like, okay, I need to get this on the page? Do you just have an idea and you're like, okay, this is kind of a story I want to take it in. Let's just see where it goes. I kind of, that's exactly what I do. I throw it on the page. Um, I will eventually reach a point where I need to go. And you mentioned research, go and do loads and loads of research. Um, Faithless is all about blacksmithing. It's about the God of, of uh, smithing. I spent a great deal of time on YouTube 
Um, the guy that used to run Reddit Fantasy, Steve Drew, uh, his dad does blacksmithing. So I got in touch with those guys and they gave me some advice. Um, there's mining features heavily in it as well. And so um, Alicia is uh, my, my fiance, is, used to work in mining. So she was a, a great source of information there. But I went back to, to Roman methods of mining to find out how we do it in a fantasy setting as well. The same thing with Prometheus, which deals with uh, special forces soldiers. So I had to deal. I had, to, I had a contact in the, the UK special forces who gave me, uh, or ex special forces, gave me a lot of information there on processes and uh, and tactics and and you know the equipment they use and how this works and how that works. I live in constant terror of uh, of comic store guy. Um, of the guy turning around and saying, ah, well, actually, no, it doesn't work like that. It works like this. So I tend to over-research and make sure I make certain that I'm right when I put it down. Yeah, so I probably spend way too much time doing that. But in terms of plotting, no, I just write in time, hit stumbling block, find a solution and then move on. I do find in books where something is wrong and most people wouldn't catch it or it's okay, you know, to get through. But, you know, you always have that one person who's like, oh, that's not, that's not quite how it works. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, it's silly because nine times out of 10, not nine, nine times out of 100, no one's ever going to notice. And it probably doesn't matter that much. And it probably helps the story. But I can't do that. It, it's the kind of thing that will eat away at me. So, yeah, I, I try and make sure it's as correct or as feasible as right. I can manage and it. As an author, it's kind of like, well, I sh- you know, kind of like, you're right. I should have researched that more or whatever. It's kind of a blow to your, your I don't know, ego, <laughs> psyche, whatever. And just yeah. to let you know, like Troy, what I want to do with this, um, this company and this website is I want it to be a complete research go-to place. Like I'm going to have videos on blacksmithing and fire making and shelter and stuff. Cause a lot of times people get stuff wrong. Um, you know, leather work and, and all sorts of things, costume design. I'm going to yeah. get in contact with costume designers and, um, historical cooks for recipes and stuff like that. So that there's, there's fewer and fewer mistakes and authors don't have to spend as much time researching they just they can just come to my site and be like okay like this is how it works and well i know we've been on for a while um and i'll let you go so you can get back to your family i appreciate you getting on um how can people contact you website uh, I'm, I'm on facebook i'm on twitter i'm on all the socials uh, luckily you can just google my name and i'm the first one that comes up so i'm pretty easy to find um also obviously amazon and any good okay. bookshop um are you i know with covid and this pandemic it's going to be tough but do you have any plans of going doing any signings or conventions or anything like that in 2021 it's hard to say we have to say how, how it all pans out i mean I, I like to attend a couple of conventions a year we go to bristol con here uh, we went to world con in dublin and i'm not sure where the next world con is but it'd be nice to get to another one at some point um i've done a lot of virtual cons I say a lot i've done a couple of virtual cons and they seem to be the way forward at the moment certainly so yeah we'll have to see how things pan out but definitely do you find value in conventions as an author for networking and meeting fans and stuff it's funny because it depends on the convention um it, i mentioned bristol con which is really in reality it's a tiny little one day thing but it's turned much more into a social thing than it has a con because i have a whole bunch of author friends that will go to it and we go to it yes we're doing the con and we're doing readings and we're doing you know panels and so on and so forth but we're also going there to meet up and and see friends which we've all become so that's come from a one-day event to a three-day event and it's largely spent in the bar uh the, yeah bar con is a thing 
there's there's definitely value in it. There's you know there's there's support from from actually seeing your friends face to face, and there's there's a lot of work chat that goes on in there. But as I say, it depends on the con. There's a fantasy con here in the UK that's almost entirely a, a business con. It's there for trad press and for agents, and it's very much a working con. Uh, Worldcon when I went was was crazy. It was great, but it was it was so intense. Three four days of just scrambling from panel to panel to try and fit things in. It was, it was hard work. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think there's value to be had from it, but it depends what you want to get out of it. Do you when you go to conventions? This is kind of a personal thing, but do you kind of geek out at authors that you read and you're like, oh my gosh, like because of you, I'm I'm this and stuff. Oh god, I, I absolutely fangirls. Um, Patrick Rothfuss in uh, in in Worldcon in London. Uh, it was I was I was there. I I hired a table in the dealer's room and I was launching my first book. And he just came wandering through, and I just just ran up. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have absolutely geeked out. So yeah, that's quite embarrassing. But you know, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I, I think it happens to the best of us. Yeah, I'll keep telling myself that. <laughs> Anybody that you haven't met yet that you'd like to? Uh, I'd like to meet Pete Brett. That'd be cool. That'd be cool. Um, I'd like. I, I, oddly, I've spoken to John Gwynn a couple of times, and he's he's read my books, and he he blows the front cover of Faithless. I think it was. Uh, I haven't actually met him face to face, which is weird because we're in the same country. It's not a bigger country, and the con circuit's not that huge here. But yeah, that would be nice to see John as well. Thank you for listening to the Troy Podcast. Please subscribe, like, and share with your friends.